Okay. Well, I have a little bit of review to do anyway, so we'll get started. We'll, we're in Ecclesiastes uh, today. We began this study last week, um, and it has a big, long, funny title, so I kind of went through a little bit of that. The, it comes from a Hebrew word, koholeth, koholeth, and it means one who calls or gathers um, or calls together an assembly. It is a, a Hebrew word there, but we have up here Ecclesiastes because it's the Greek sort of translation of that word, and it means the preacher, because he is the one that would typically call together or address the assembly. So if you wanted to sort of make a little note there, you could say, oh, Ecclesiastes means the preacher. And as you go through this book, you'll see that all through it. It says over and over again, the preacher, the preacher, he says this, he says that, Uh, or your translation might say the teacher, but it is the one that addresses the uh, assembly. And uh, we talked last week about the author. You learn pretty, pretty early on in the book who the author is. If you look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 1, we're told that the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we learned right away he's a son of uh, David, King David. He's also king in Jerusalem. And this particular son of David, who was a king, in verse 16, had great wisdom. He had great understanding and knowledge. And so we looked at a lot of other things last week. We won't go into them today, but there's a lot of other things throughout this text and even outside that show us this is none other than King Solomon who writes these words. This is then wisdom literature. He's the wisest man who ever lived. And you have to understand when we look at wisdom literature, we're looking at something that is primarily concerned with helping us, the audience, to understand the the practical and philosophical issues of life. That's the point of them. Proverbs does the same thing. Ecclesiastes is trying to do that through the life of Solomon, but it's not told in a narrative, not told in in a story uh, format. It's, It's told really through the experiences and thoughts and even sort of some of the poems of Solomon himself as he takes his own personal pilgrimage or his own quest on the search for meaning. The meaning of life. Is there a meaning to life? And if so, what is it? And that's really what we began to look at this uh, last week. So Ecclesiastes then is representing the autobiography of Solomon because he squandered God's blessings, right, um, on personal uh, pursuits for much of his, his life. And it was in a quest for a meeting, meaning here. And so what he's doing is he's writing to share with the next generation and future generations that they, they, to warn them, really, to not make the same mistakes, to instead live for the glory of, of God. And he begins this book, last week in chapter 1, by giving us the results of his quest. He begins at the end, um, and he, the result is vanity, vanity, or, or meaningless, your translation might uh, say. That word is used 37 times throughout the book. Um, So it is a massive theme of what he writes here. And so he says, everything is vanity, everything is meaningless. And so he asks two questions at the very beginning. And the first is in verse 3. What profit has a man from all his labor? That was his first question. Um, The issue being, what do we gain? You know, after we live this life on earth and we work all our lives day in and day out, we put all this sweat and energy and everything into life, what do you get out of it? What value is left over for you? That's the question that he's asking here. Because as he looks at life, just purely looking at it, he just sees futile sort of repetitions of life. That everything's laboring. 
that man doesn't just labor, but everything labors, and it seems to labor just for no apparent reason other than just to labor and fulfill a function, but nothing else other beyond that. He gives us the example in, in verse 4 that one generation labors, the next one, that one passes, and the next one replaces them, right? One generation after uh, another. He gives the example from nature in verse 5 of the sun. The sun works all day, right? It goes, it goes over, and it comes around, and it comes back, right? it just keeps doing that, does it? At least from his perspective, right? But it works. It hastens to go down. It literally pants to go down. It's working all the time, but it, to do the same thing over and over again with no apparent anything coming out of that. The wind in verse 6, same uh, thing. It, it's in constant motion, but it never arrives at a, a single point. In verse 7, he looks at the water. The rivers continually run into the sea, but the, never, the sea never fills. So the Waters go back to the river, and it just keeps going on this sort of feudal uh, cycle. And so he just sees all this evidence that it's just sort of futile. It's, it's vain repetitions. Then he asks another question. He says, is there anything that can be said? Is anything new? Is there anything new under the, the sun? Because as he looks at it, he sees futile innovations. He doesn't see really anything new. New technology, in reality, only speeds things up, and it meets the needs maybe a little more easily, efficiently than before, but they're still the same old needs. The needs to communicate, the needs to heal, the needs to destroy, the need to discover, all those needs are still met, but in different ways. And so he just really regards these things as nothing, nothing new. In fact, in in verse 10, at the end of that, he says, it's already been in ancient times before us. There's nothing really new. And he concluded last week, looking at his wisdom. So I'm, I'm, I'm king. I have all this great wisdom. What, how has that helped me? And this, these are his four conclusions we looked at these last week. The first was from verse uh, 13. Wisdom is burdensome. Wisdom is burdensome. That we all, we all are burdened with this having to figure life out. We, we got to know, you know, plan and, and, and try to plan our lives in order to understand where we're going and what it all means. And, and no one's free from that. We're all burdened with that um, um, burden of where is life going? What's it all about? The second conclusion he reached was in verse 14, and that's wisdom is frustrated. It's, it's hoped that wisdom would bring a sense of gain in life, a sense of satisfaction. Um, but, but Solomon finds that that eludes him. He said, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. Indeed, all is vanity. It's grasping for the wind. It's it's it's, it's a frustrating event. You can't grasp the wind. And, and then the third thing he came up with was wisdom. It, it can't solve everything in verse 15. What's crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be, uh, cannot be numbered. Human effort and action uh, fix or to counteract things. You, you can do some things, but the deficiencies in nature, we can't fix them all. We still haven't found the cure for cancer, right? There are twists, there are gaps in life, and wisdom can help with some things, but ultimately it cannot solve the fundamental problem of life. And his fourth and final conclusion was from verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Wisdom ultimately brings grief. The expected outcome of wisdom is success, and in the world's terms, that equals happiness, right? Success equals happiness. But there are no guarantees in this life. This grieves that person who places their hope in human achievement and human wisdom. 
And Solomon, with his surpassing wisdom and his surpassing knowledge, concluded his investigation. He realized that his wisdom held little real value, real advantage. And so he gave us all that in, in, chapter, in chapter 1. But that wasn't the actual quest. The quest begins here in chapter uh, 2. This is where it begins. So let's read it. It's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. We'll read the passage first. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted, planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor." Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly and light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness." Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to hear your words today and the words of Solomon. And we do pray, Lord, that you would guide us into truth today. Lord, that your spirit would illuminate scripture to us, illuminate these truths. Lord, we are grasping with difficult things that Solomon found difficult to grasp with. And I pray that you'd help us open up our um, spiritual eyes, open up our hearts to receive what you want us to receive today for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, looking back at the beginning of chapter 2, I just have a very simple outline. This is Solomon's exhaustive quest. It begins here today. And he is going to start this quest by a couple of experiments. Um, it'll involve several experiments, and the first one is here. It, it, it is the experiment of pleasure-seeking. The experiment of pleasure-seeking. 
Notice what he says here in verse 1. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. So he's going to test life. He's going to begin his quest with the test of mirth. Mirth is a funny word. I don't hear a lot of you using the word mirth anymore. I don't think anybody said to me when I asked them how your New Year's was, it was filled with mirth. Because I would have said, you're weird. (laughs) Who uses the word mirth? Well, Solomon did. He says, I will test you with mirth. Well, it is again, it's a Hebrew, Hebrew word. It's simha. It's simha. And it means pleasure, gaiety, gladness, but of a particular kind. When I looked at where this is used in scripture, it's most often used not on frivolous activities, but on areas that um, require thoughtful pleasure. Does that make sense? Thoughtful pleasure seeking. Let me give you a couple examples. One of them is in Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. Don't worry, I have it for you here. Uh, it speaks of the joy that you would have at religious festivals. Also in the day of your gladness, there's the word there, in your appointed feasts and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So Simha, there is gladness. There should be a joy, a pleasure in uh, appointed feasts, coming together for those things that the Lord had appointed. It's also used in the gratitude of serving the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47, it says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart, there it is again, for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. It seems here in this context that the Lord actually requires mirth, (laughs) gladness, as we serve him, that there should be a gladness of heart in serving him, that we don't serve him under compulsion or reluctantly, oh, I got to go do what God wants me to do, like Jonah, right? That was mirthless. Is that a word? It is today. But we are to serve him with that kind of mirth. And so he says, I'm going to set my heart, I'm going to, uh, sorry, set my heart on this mirth. I'm going to test you with mirth, but not just mirth. He goes on and says, therefore, enjoy pleasure. Enjoy pleasure. Well, here he uses a different word. He doesn't use uh, mirth, which can be translated as pleasure. Here, the word for pleasure is tov. And this means what's good or pleasant or agreeable to the senses. That's that sort of sensual kind of pleasure. What makes me feel good? So I'm going to look at two kinds of pleasure, Solomon says. I'm going to look at the things that require thoughtful pleasures, but also the things that appeal to my senses. I'm going to test both of those things. Solomon's path here is hedonism. It's hedonism. Hedonism is the school of thought that argues that pleasure is the primary or most important intrinsic good. That is the school of thought that our world today ascribes to. That is the message that our world today most aggressively promotes. If it feels good, do it. That's what our world says to do, right? Pursue pleasure. If something brings you joy, something brings you happiness, don't hesitate to do it. If your spouse isn't bringing you happiness, we'll leave them and go find someone who will bring you happiness. Is that not the message of our world? Because you are at the center of your universe, and your pleasure is all there is. This is the experiment Solomon is pursuing. 
is it really about my pleasure? Is the world onto something here? Maybe I'm going to try this out and see if they are correct. Oscar Wilde famously said, pleasure is the only thing one should live for. Nothing ages like happiness. See what he does there is that pleasure equates with happiness. Here's my question, and and, and his as well, Solomon's. Does it? Does pleasure really equate with happiness? Woody Allen, famous uh, film director and writer, said, you can live to be 100 if you give up all the things that would keep you from living to be 100. His point is, why, why? Live for now, right? Live it up now. Live it up now. And so that is what Solomon is going to do. He's going to pursue these, these pleasures. And his conclusion comes very quickly here at the end of verse 1. But surely this also was vanity. Vanity. And there's that word we looked at last week because it was used five times already in the first chapter. Havel. Havel. You're going to see that a lot in this book. Uh, a breath or a wind or a vapor is where it's most often uh, used. But it's a, it's a metaphor. It refers to what's unsubstantial or what, what uh, has no real value. When it's used with compares, uh, compared to the characteristics of wind or, or vapor, it's speaking about something fleeting, right? Something that's transitory. Um, isn't it interesting here that, that today we live in a hedonistic society? Because the wisest man who ever lived, ever, already tried out hedonism for all of us. And he concluded, but surely this also was vanity. That's a conclusion that he really reached back in verse 11 of chapter 1. There is no remembrance of former things. Do you remember that? And we said, well, we do remember things. We see monuments of things. Like, no, we live as if there's no remembrance of former things. Today we live as if Solomon never lived. Who knows the words of Solomon today? We don't know it. We don't follow his teaching here. We don't listen to his advice, even though he is the wisest man who ever lived. So with these two forms of of pleasure, the the mirth and the pleasure there, um, we get these two sort of separate kinds of conclusions uh, here in verse 2. I said of laughter, madness. I said of laughter, madness. What's he speaking of when he says laughter here? This word is sehok. And it's that superficial glee or uh, joy that you get from uh, playing a game. That's the idea there. In fact, Solomon will use that same word in one of his Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 10, verse 23. He says this, To do evil is like sport to a fool, but a man of understanding has wisdom. That word sport is that uh, word sehok. It's a game, right? It's a game. And, And Solomon's point there in Proverbs is that those who pursue evil, it's sort of like a, a, a superficial kick to them. It's a kick of a, adrenaline, and it gives them that rush that provides a sense of, of a temporary sense of purpose and meaning. Why do so many young people who have maybe come from bad homes go into these gangs and things? People say, oh, because it's a sense of family that they didn't have. No, it's no more family than they had there. It's a sense of family because most of them gangs, how many good gangs do you know of, right? Right? They pursue wicked, evil things, because they get that kick that gives them a temporary sense of purpose. Oh, now I have purpose. It's to do these things. So they're focused in the wrong direction. Does that make sense? Um, They're going the wrong way. It's a superficial joy that they get out of a game, 
to them. It's, it's not real to them. It's, it's a game. Hey, listen, I have no problem with, with playing uh, games. We, we went away on holiday this week, and we took a stack of games. I think we only played two of them, but, you know, we, we were prepared to play us some games. But when you think about it, that's just superficial, right? It's a temporary joy that goes away. And what he says about that kind of joy that we get from those kind of things, he says, it's madness. That's a pretty harsh word. Madness. And the word used for madness is halal. And it means to make one a fool. To destroy reason. When we live for those temporary kicks of joy, you are made a fool. You actually lose reason. It's used in Job chapter 12, verse 17. Speaking of God, it says, God leads counselors away, plundered, and makes fools of the judges. He makes fools of the judges, Hallel of the judges. Solomon will use that same word later in chapter 7, verse 7. Surely, oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. That word Hallel destroys a wise man's reason is used there. Michael Eaton, who is a, a commentator, New Testament commentator, said this, that rather than face life as it is, merrymakers drown the hard facts in a sea of frivolity. That's the idea here. Rather than face the reality of our world, I'm just going to fill it with all these frivolous temporary things, and I'm going to pack it full so that that temporary sense of joy at least seems to be more than temporary, right? If I just keep them coming then I'll I'll constantly at least feel a sense of purpose, sense of joy. And he says that that kind of laughter, that kind of uh, life is is a madness. It lacks reason. It's foolish, he says. It's simha. But here also he says, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? So we got the two conclusions of laughter, of that sort of temporary sensual pleasure um, that doesn't accomplish anything. It's madness. But of that other deeper one, mirth, you know, where you can use that even in, you know, the joy at at festivals and worshiping God. He's like, what what does that accomplish ultimately is what he's saying. I mean, for the weightier matters, those thoughtful ones, what do they achieve that the preacher is asking? Does it provide any fundamental change, any answers, any long-lasting satisfaction. It's a rhetorical question he's asking here. What does it accomplish? He sees no purpose in even that. So both kinds of joy, both kinds of pleasure receive appropriate verdicts. They don't have any meaning to him. And so the preacher, Solomon, now gives us the details of his quest. So that's sort of the intro to his quest. Now he's going to give us the details. Here's how I pursued this hedonistic quest. And Solomon goes for it. He did, when you read this, he just goes for it. I mean, it's, he, he seeks laughter, gladness, wine, wealth, women, you name it. He goes for all of it. Why does he do that? This is why. To see that if we operate on simply this horizontal plane, remember I talked about this last week? If we operate on this horizontal plane um, and we ignore the vertical one, we see that there's no real value to life. If I only focus on what the world has to offer me, there's not going to be much really left over for me. There's no real value, and I'm going to test it. Remember Solomon here in this book, he's seeking empirical evidence, evidence we can test uh, with the senses. That's what he's seeking. He's not thinking about the spiritual plane in this test. 
And he wants to answer the question, does it go beyond pleasure or is pleasure all there is? Many young Christians who grow up in Christian homes, who are brought up in Christian homes and uh, leave their homes, often embark upon a Solomon-esque quest for meaning. I had family members that said, oh, they're just sowing their oats. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. That's just something those people do. They go sow their oats because they've heard about all these pleasures that the world indulges themselves in, and they feel like, well, maybe I've been missing out. Maybe my parents aren't quite clued into everything, and maybe there is a worthwhile pleasure. That is what goes through the young person's mind. I've, I've been missing out. And it can't be all that bad after all. And so what Solomon is doing is he is going to embark on the same kind of quest, but he's going to do it intentionally to see if that is true. Does the world really have something I'm not aware of, right? And so he's going to list his hedonistic achievements, and then we'll kind of go through these kind of quickly here. Look at verse 3. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom. Well, that's a feat. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. He is going to embark on a double path here, mind and body. Solomon searched in his mind how to to lead along his body with wine. (laughs) He wants to shepherd his mind with wisdom and grasp folly until he could see what was good, what comes from that. It's a deliberate test. Here's the difference. He's not going to barrel ahead blindly in, in incontrolled excess. He's not pursuing that. He wants to see if there's any value to this at all. He wants to test the effects of pleasure-seeking to see if they're worthwhile. One commentator, Ian Proven, says this. He, he treads one path with his body while taking another with his mind, hoping in his intoxicated state to experience the full depths of folly and to arrive at discernment. Okay? That's what, that's what he's hoping to do. Can it be done? Can I have that, that wine and, 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 and just indulge myself in that and yet maintain my discernment through it all? I don't know how many opportunities you've had to see people who are inebriated, but I don't generally see a lot of discernment. I, I don't know about you, but they frequent the Cardiff area, particularly on Friday and Saturday nights, don't they? And it can be easily seen that discernment maybe is the thing lacking. Well, Solomon is going to try that. He's going to try to combine the two. Can I be discerning with the wine? That was his, that's his first test. The second area he's going to go into um, sort of is his his buildings and all those things that he, he is known uh, for, luxurious gardens, uh, buildings, all those things are sort of characteristic of royalty uh, and nobility in the ancient Near East. Egypt and Mesopotamia they, um, were great examples of this, and, and so was Solomon. And look what he says here, verses 4, 5, 6, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. So we just have a little example here of what kind of maybe works achievements he did. But to find a better description, I want to take you to 1 Kings. Would you just make a left-hand turn to 1 Kings? And actually keep your finger there when you go back and forth because we will come back to it. 1 Kings chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7. Because 1 Kings 
tells us about the life of Solomon. And the achievements of Solomon here are listed out in detail. And I want you just, I want just to get you a better idea. Not much description is given there in Ecclesiastes, but we have some very descriptive sections here in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits, with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There were windows with beveled frames in three rows, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. Verse 6, he also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits. And in front of them was a portico with pillars, and a canopy was in front of them. Then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall uh, of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. All these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation to the eaves and also on the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits, some Eight cubits and above were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. So that's just one little section. You can just see the detail that he put into his works. Thirteen years he took to build his house, right? And you have all these descriptions. He poured his time and energy into those works. But go back to Ecclesiastes. Keep your fingers in 1 Kings, but we'll come back to Ecclesiastes. Look at verses 7 and 8, what he talks about here. Wealth, um, possessions in terms of female and male servants. Verse 7, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and the musical instruments of all kinds. So go back to 1 Kings again, but just go to chapter 5 instead. Another description of sort of some of these possessions and things that he has given to us from 1 Kings chapter 5. Look at verse 13. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. (laughs) And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts, that they were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains, besides 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored the work. Uh, That's a lot of manpower there that was at his disposal. Not just that, go up to chapter 10 of 1 Kings. You might remember this, the queen of Sheba pays Solomon a visit, and she's blown away by what she sees and hears. 
in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 4. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. She was blown away by what she saw and heard. His works, his buildings, his, his manpower there, his riches, his wealth. In fact, if you go further down to verse 14, we have a great description of the kind of wealth he was collecting. Look at verse 14. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went to each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minas of gold went to each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. Just amazing. Amazing show of wealth and power from Solomon's kingdom. We also know, and I read this last week, that he had a large harem to satisfy his fleshly needs in verse 3 of chapter 11. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. So Solomon, like I said earlier, uh, went for it. (laughs) All the wealth, the wine, the women, everything, to see if it would add up to anything. And what did it all do? Well, verse 9, going back to our study in Ecclesiastes, verse 9. Here's the conclusion. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. This is great. It made him him great, and he didn't even lose his wisdom in the process. And you might go, well, look at that. That's a great outcome. That is the result, right? Well, actually, that isn't the result. His wisdom uh, increased. His riches increased. But notice what he says in verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. I mean, he, he went for it. Everything his eye saw, he just took it and he went for it. Everything his heart wanted, he took it and he went for it. And what was his reward? Oh, well, he was, he was great. No. Look what he says in verse 10. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. That's his reward. His reward was the pleasure he experienced in pursuing pleasure. That was the reward. You say, well, hold on a second. He, he was powerful. Uh, he, 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 was, he was rich. Yeah, what do those things bring you? Right? More responsibilities and pleasure. <laughs> right? just, just look at our rich people in our world today. Right? They're burdened with more responsibilities and they have pleasure. But nothing greater than that. And that's what he says here. That's the highest point. That's as good as it gets. In fact, Verse 11 is the morning after the party. (laughs) 
That's what verse 11 is. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and all the labor in which I had toiled. When he says, I, I looked, he's literally saying, pana. Pana means I turned my face. I turned to face something. I, he's facing the facts. I had to face the reality of what I had just done. That is That ver, uh, word pana is used in Job 6.28. Now, therefore, he, be pleased to look at me for I would never lie to your face. It, it, it has the idea of I turn to face the facts, face to face. And what do those facts conclude? Look at verse 11 again. And indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no prophet under the sun. His conclusion is the same verdict he previously gave wisdom. He now gives to pleasure. It was vanity. Havel, except he combines all of his terms into one conclusion, toil, vanity, grasping for the wind, no profit, under the sun. It's a pile up of terms. He had experienced the joy of accomplishment. He isn't saying um, just sit on your backside and don't do anything. He experienced the joy of accomplishment and he had experienced pleasure from it all. And even some of it was not frivolous, remember, some of that was mirth, some of it was thoughtful. But in the end, he found no real ultimate gain from it all. So that's his conclusion from his first experiment, the experiment of pleasure-seeking. It's vanity. It's grasping for the wind. There is no profit. That's that word, yathrown, we looked at last week. That means there's nothing, nothing of value left over under the sun. And remember, it's a key term, under the sun. He's speaking again of this horizontal plane. As man lives under the sun upon the earth, It affects all who are upon the earth, not just in Solomon's kingdom. Every man lives under the sun. There's just no value left over when I search for pleasure. I just get pleasure. I don't have anything beyond that. So that's his conclusion from the first experiment. The second experiment is the experiment of wisdom and folly. The experiment of wisdom and folly. Look at verse 12. Then I turned myself. There's that word again, panah. I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. So wisdom, pleasure-seeking, both had failed him, but he comes back to this wisdom because is there really any value at all to wisdom? Does it fail in all respects is what he wants to look at. Because, here's his point, there's going to be a king after Solomon. Notice what he says Uh, there, right? What can the man do who succeeds the king? There's going to be a king after him. And wisdom, wisdom is the special need of the king. When you look at scripture, wisdom is a particular need for those that are in, in some sort of aspect of leadership. If you consider this proverb, chapter 8, verse 14 through 16, wisdom is speaking here. Counsel is mind and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all the judges of the earth. Wisdom is the special need of the king. And the king who follows after Solomon will have to do the similar thing, right? And he says, but what can he do? Only what has already been done. What more will the next king do? be able to do. So what Solomon has to do is face the facts of his wisdom. Was there anything out of wisdom that I can gain here? And so he looks at wisdom and folly, and he compares it to 
madness and folly. He he alluded to this back in chapter 1, verse 17. Just look at it really quickly. He said, And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also was grasping for the wind. In his introduction, he tells us that he's going to look at this aspect, and now he's looking at it, okay? He's coming to it. He's saying, I want to look at this aspect of wisdom and folly. The word folly here is sikluth, and it simply means foolishness. It really is the word folly, foolishness. Solomon had pursued uh, foolishness, right? We just saw him do it through all those things, wine and excess and all those things, right? Um, And he did it trying to exercise good judgment, Because wisdom enabled him to do that. Um, But when he looked at the comparison, he said, comparison to madness and folly, that is how it matches up. It's madness. This word for madness is different than the word for madness that we saw earlier, Hillel. This one is holala. That actually means madness. You're, You're out of your mind. Remember the other version, Hillel was to make one a fool. Here, this is, this is, just madness. It's, it's hedonism. It's hedonism with no restraint, no discernment. Solomon exercised discernment when he had wisdom with it, right? But when you just go for folly here, it's madness. Now, that's not how Solomon pursued pleasure. So he's saying, did, did wisdom have some value? Is there value to the wisdom? And he has two answers. There's a twofold uh, answer here in verse 13 and a little bit of 14. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head. Now, that word excels is that word that you just saw a few verses earlier in verse 11 that says prophet. No prophet. There was no prophet. It's yathron. Here it's, it's translated excels because that's the idea. Uh, when you say there's, there's no prophet from it, he says there's nothing of value left over. And, and that's what he's looking at here. He says, well, wisdom does excel something. It does excel folly. It does gain an advantage over it. Why? Why does wisdom gain an advantage over foolishness? Do we have anything else anywhere that you could remember that talks about that? Perhaps the book of Proverbs, <laughs> right? Take a look at Proverbs chapter 2. Just make a short left-hand turn because it's the book right before this one. Proverbs chapter 2. I just want you to look at chapter 2 here. Because Proverbs here tells us that wisdom is indeed value. In fact, my little title above chapter 2 says the value of wisdom. So we can just read this chapter and see what kind of value is in wisdom. It says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment, And lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path when wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight 
in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths, to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Wisdom has great, great value, especially over folly. I have a a book here that uh, we've done quite a few uh, biblical parenting classes, uh, and many of you have attended. And this is one of the books I always bring out. It's called Proverbs for Parenting. And it isn't uh, a book of its own Proverbs. It's the book of Proverbs, but broken down by subject so that you can see what value it might have into parenting. And I just want to read to you all, this is not exhaustive, but some of the areas that wisdom speaks to in life. Reverence for God, trust in God. It compares fools and talks about folly. It gives advice for boys, for girls, judgment, knowledge, marriage and sex, obedience, reproof and correction, wisdom and understanding. Talks about anger, diligence, drinking, envy, jealousy, fear, greed, covetousness, haste, hate, jumping to conclusions, pride, selfishness, self-control, self-satisfaction, sleeping, rising, temper, temptation, arguing, strife, boasting, complaining, control of your mouth, evil speaking, flattery, gossip, lying, tattletaling, teasing, avoiding bad associations, busybody, confronting, counsel, advice, getting along with others, love, friendship, respect of parents, bribery, cheating, stealing, cruelty, evil, evil planning, evil thinking, mischief, rejoicing in evil, vengeance, wickedness, discretion, prudence, faithfulness, goodness, happiness, honesty, humility, justice, mercy, righteousness, strength, uprightness, you get the point? It speaks to many areas of life. And so wisdom has great value over foolishness, right? To ignore wisdom is to ignore something of great, great value. John MacArthur said, The fool is not one who is mentally deficient, but is morally bankrupt. It is not that he cannot learn wisdom, but that he won't. He refuses to know fear and obey God. What Solomon is getting at here is saying wisdom, wisdom, his wisdom, which came from God, is going to be of benefit. It is better than folly. And so look at the comparison that he gives us. Go back to Ecclesiastes here. It excels folly as light excels darkness. Did you see that? As light excels darkness. Since wisdom is God's gift, it is God's light. And look what he says. The wise man's eyes are in his head. You go, well, of course they are, right? No, listen. As man's possession, it is light. And so the wise man's eyes are in his head. He can see. Does that make sense? He can see. He can discern. He can make decisions because he actually has his eyes. But the fool, the fool doesn't. Look, the fool walks in darkness. He has no light. He has no discernment. He can't see. So the gift is light in a dark world, and it gives life to the possessor of it. So wisdom is important. We, we need that. What other value does wisdom offer? We'll look at verse 14. Uh, again, that fool walks in darkness, yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So the fool, who doesn't choose wisdom, he has no light, he has no eyes in his head, he can't see. What does that make you think of, actually? John chapter 3, verse 19, maybe? And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You can definitely connect 
the wisdom or lack thereof for those who pursue evil deeds. Or they have no, 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 no light, and they actually love the darkness. And you might think, well, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, because it's folly. <laughs> it's foolishness. They don't operate under wisdom. Wisdom, ultimately, it comes from God. So the second part of Solomon's answer finds that, that wisdom, okay, while it, it has value, it also it can't cure the problem of life. So that's kind of where he began. It does have value, but it can't cure the problem of life. Because, he says, there is an event that happens to both the wise man and the fool. Look what he says here at the very last ver- uh, line of verse 14. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. What, what event? What's he talking about when he says the same event happens to them all? Well, the word for event is mikre, mikre. And it means a happening or a chance encounter, or many times it's translated as fate um, or an accident. I will tell you there's no such thing as fate or an accident in Scripture, but this word is used all throughout it not to speak of an accident. In fact, I'll give you a great example. Uh, It's used uh, in the story of Ruth when it tells that Ruth the Moabitess, when she went to glean in the fields, she happened, Micre, to go to Boaz's field. Now, we know that wasn't just fate, but that God was working through that because we know that what he, he brought a redeemer from that line. But, but this is the idea of, of something that is not arbitrary. It's unplanned and unexpected from a human perspective. We don't know when our event will come. That event that he speaks of is death. It's unexpected. It's unplanned. And that's what he's speaking of here. When he looks at the fool and the wise man, he says, well, we both die. Look at verse 15. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it all also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. The thing with death is that it is inevitable, is his point. There's a line from the villain in Avengers Endgame, Thanos, and his line is, I am inevitable, <laughs> right? I would take that and put it to death. No, death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. And that's what Solomon is facing himself with. In the case of death, its ultimate inevitability makes Solomon's quest seem futile. So Solomon returns to a point that he made earlier in chapter 1, verse 11. We looked at it, and he says it here in verse 16. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Have people forgotten Solomon? Yeah, we live in a hedonistic society. So his point is absolutely clear when he says it here. People have ignored his conclusions regarding the pursuit of hedonism, and they continue on in that pursuit only to end in futility, to find no ultimate uh, value there. We still have friends who are um, actors or uh, still in that sort of world, and I, I see some that are on Facebook, that their, their life right now is to, to dress up like Han Solo and Princess Leia Organa at all these Comic-Con conventions and things like that. that that's, that's, just, that's what they do. That's the, that's, that's, that's their life. It's, that's it. It's pretend, Right? They dress up and pretend, which is what actors do for a living, by the way, right? They pretend to be people they're not. And then 
they go home to their real lives and you wonder why they struggle. Because they live lives in a fairy tale world and they struggle to live in the real world. Not every actor, but it's prevalent, is it not? You see it quite often. And so people have forgotten the conclusion that Solomon has reached here that it's just ultimately futile. And he gets desperate here. Look at verse 17. Therefore, this is his conclusion, I hated life (laughs) because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Distressing is ra'ah. And it means bad, evil. It's a tough word he's using here. He's speaking of life as a, as a whole. He's, I hated life because it's just bad. It's unpleasant. It's displeasing. If death brings wisdom to a halt, then how am I any better than a fool, is his point. If it doesn't ultimately make any difference how one lives, and if there's nothing ultimately worthwhile to do, then all of life's accomplishments are are futile. Now later, life will be portrayed differently as we look at it with a, a vertical perspective. But remember, Solomon is looking at it this way, under the sun. I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing. So here, I hated life. And maybe you know people who have that kind of outlook on life. They see no purpose, no value, no meaning in life. So much so that they they hate it. We certainly know that exists. People take their own lives sometimes, don't they? Because they just can't make sense of life. I hated life. I hated living. It, It was better to be dead. Solomon experienced both the highs and the lows. And whether you're on the high because you're enjoying the the pleasures of this life, the hedonistic lifestyle, or the lows because you feel um, life has let you down, there is only one solution. There is only one. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said this, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The thief is the world. The world's way. And the world's way only leads to destruction. It only comes to kill. It only comes to destroy. The pleasure is fleeting. It's grasping for the wind. And then it's gone. And what does it leave you with? Well, a desire for more pleasure. But an abundant life is possible with Christ. It's impossible with the world, but it's possible with Christ. I remember seeing an interview with Mel Gibson after he had uh, finished making the, the Passion and it was with Barbara Walters, who's probably only an American uh, uh, lady, but she was interviewing him about the movie and how the movie may have portrayed maybe anti-Semitic you know, views and stuff like that. And, and it turns out maybe he had that kind of tendency in himself and anyhow. But he, I remember what he said. He said, listen, when I started, the world, the world handed everything to me in a platter. I mean, the world just said, here. Because he's a young guy, and he became this, you know, megastar. And he said, I had it all, all of it. It was all given to me. And he's telling her this on, on television. And then I, I, I realized that I just, it never filled anything. I, I just always wanted more. It just never lasted. And so, so I found my faith, and I want people to know the story of Christ. He says, so ultimately, Barbara, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with the Gospels. 
He told her that point blank. I thought, wow, okay, you know, for whatever you may have against him or whatever, you know, he said something right there. He said something right there. He had experienced all that life had to offer him, and it, for him it was vanity. It was meaningless. And he said, I just, I needed, to, I needed to find something more of value, and that was Christ for him. And it is only Christ. Jesus came to give us an abundant life, one that helps us find value under the sun. This is not a, a hopeless experiment, ultimately. I'm just going to give you a shed of light here, because Solomon is taking us through his quest. Each experiment results in failure, right? I finished this experiment, I still find it vain, meaningless, uh, empty. I want to tell you, like, it isn't. <laughs> there is value in this life only if you come to the one who gives us that value in this life and promises true life in the life to come. That's our true life. We live this life honoring him, glorifying him, finding purpose, finding meaning, finding value. Does it mean life won't be difficult? No. Nope. Does it mean you won't have tragedy? No. Nope. The world could be taken out from underneath your feet. You could lose your very foundation here in this world under the sun, but you will never, ever lose your spiritual one. That is a promise. The abundant life Christ offers is available to you today. He just says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you laboring and toiling for the things of the world? You stop. (laughs) Don't do it because it's vanity. Come to Christ. He will take that burden. You need forgiveness of sins. You need a new life in him. And with that new life, you find the abundant life that he promises. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for the words of Solomon, that he would be so bold to share his failures and his experiments here and trying to find value and meaning in life uh, devoid of a God, only using human achievement and wisdom and pursuits to find meaning. Lord, I just pray, Lord, for any of us that are maybe slowly drifting that way, the way of the world, drifting towards trying to find meaning, trying to find purpose, happiness, if we want to say it that way, in the things of this world, we just won't find it. Solomon tells us so. Lord, you call us to come to you, to draw close to you. And when we draw close to you, you draw close to us. Oh God, we just pray that your people would do that. Lord, keep us close to you. Bind us closely, Lord. You promise that you will never, ever fail the righteous, Lord. Never. And we thank you, Lord, that you are that kind of God that we can rely upon forever and eternity. Thank you for loving us in that way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.